0: Hey guys, what's up? It's uh, June 10th. It's Liberty 412 Podcast. Uh, it's episode 17. i got a really special guest uh, on the line with me right now. Uh, before we start, make sure you share the podcast with your friends on social media and your family. Uh, you can be, consider becoming a patron. Donate a monthly uh, sum to support the podcast. Uh, follow me on Twitter at 412Libertarian. Um, I don't want to waste too much time because I've got a great guest on the line. Uh, Stefan Kinsella is with me, and uh, he is a patent attorney from Texas, and he's the author of Against Intellectual Property, which is one of the best books uh, out there for libertarians. Uh, what's going on, Stefan?
1: Well, just enjoying a nice day at home as usual <laughs> here in Houston, uh, and the, the, the George Floyd funeral is over that was here yesterday. So uh, just uh, that you know, enjoying yesterday. life that's where think, he
0: was yeah. uh he was from there is that why i don't really understand why i think was it so there?
1: i think he was born or raised here or something yeah
0: okay i was kind of wondering um well anyway um if for people that don't know stefan so the the word association that i like to use with uh stefan is intellectual property that's kind of like the main thing that he's known for and it's it's really good that you wrote that book against intellectual property. Can you kind of go over uh, intellectual property a bit for people that aren't familiar with it? Just give like a quick synopsis.
1: Sure. Um I'm yeah, I'm a I'm a by trade I'm a patent attorney um and I have been one for 20 25 or something years now. And uh, I've also been a libertarian for a long time. Um And I've sort of blended these things or I have as my side – my side hobby is uh, writing on libertarian legal topics. So a lot of the things that have interested me have not been IP-related like rights theory and contract theory and uh, various legal issues. But because I'm a patent attorney, so I know a lot about this very arcane system of law and copyright law and other types of so-called intellectual property… I decided to start writing about it because I was, you know, I, I was dissatisfied myself as a young libertarian, like in in college and then in law school, with with the standard defenses of intellectual property by standard libertarian um, thought leaders like Ayn Rand and people like that. So they're all basically for capitalism, they call it, and the free market and private property rights. And they say that they're in favor of intellectual property too as if it's a, just another type of property right. So the word intellectual property is what's used in the law to refer to these strange types of, of rights, uh, namely patent and copyright but also trademark and trade secret and a few others that most people haven't heard of like the uh, um, Semiconductor Chip Protection Act, things like that. Um, so patent and copyright… Or these systems that we have in the West, which are called intellectual property, and as I said, most of the original libertarian defenders are are, are important thinkers like in the 50s and 60s. Both the utilitarians and the economists like Milton Friedman and these types um, and the ones that are more interested in principles and rights like Ayn Rand, they all pretty much defend intellectual property because… It's a type of property right, and it's just a different way of protecting what you do in life, like normal property rights like right to own a house or a car um, or a garden or the the stuff you produce in your garden or in your factory. um, It's considered to be – it's important that we protect it because it's the fruits of your labor. right? It's the result of your effort. And that's what a free market's all about. This is the standard argument. I don't actually agree with this way of putting it, but that's the standard argument. And so then the intellectual property advocates just extend that and say, well, you have to extend mental effort to create a useful idea or a useful pattern of information like a novel or a painting or a song, uh, which is what copyright covers, or a useful invention like a new mousetrap or a new, uh, a new steam engine or… Uh, uh, an airplane, you know, things like that. And so, if you extend, if you uh, if you uh, expend mental energy or mental effort and creativity to so-called create this new quote thing that exists, right, like a new idea, uh, which is useful for humans, then the person who created it should be its owner. Right? So this is the standard argument. So what they do is they take the normal argument for property rights in scarce resources like land, and they extend it to basically two ideas because they're created, and they, it takes effort and labor to create them. Um, now, they don't quite follow the logic of their argument to its conclusion because the, the argument would imply that you should – just like if you own a piece of property or a watch or a car… You could theoretically own it forever, right? And you could pass it on to your heirs, and they could own it forever. So you could have property that's owned in perpetuity or infinitely, right? But patent and copyright are only owned for limited times. So patent lasts for about 17 years, and copyright lasts—it used to last for around 14 years, and now it lasts for around 100, 100 plus years. But they're both—they both have uh, limited terms. So they expire after a certain point in time. So right off the bat, there's something odd about um, intellectual property. If it's going to be a property right, why does it expire, and why do its advocates who call it property – why do even most of them think that, yeah, it needs to expire after a certain point in time? What kind of property right is it that needs to expire? There's something odd about it. So that's what got me off on this quest when I was a young scholar and a young lawyer – I said, I'll I'll figure this out. I will come up with a good argument for IP because I I assumed it was a good thing because it's called property. And the more I looked into it, I finally realized – well, I kept running into roadblocks. Every argument I would come up with made no sense, and so I finally realized "Ah, there's a reason this makes no sense um, because it can't be justified. So I think the whole argument is flawed and that patent and copyright law or actually completely antithetical to private property rights, to freedom, personal liberty, the free market, and competition. They are basically just government grants of monopoly privilege, uh, which impede competition and censor speech and restrict and distort the market.
0: Wow, what, what an answer. That is amazing. I never actually – I've listened to a lot of your interviews with uh, like Tom Woods and other people. And I don't think I've ever heard that perspective. Uh, that's unique to me. Um, I never thought of it that way. Like, why does it expire after X amount of years if it's a legitimate property right? I never actually thought of that. So that's really now, interesting.
1: Now, well, now some of the more consistent advocates of IP they advocate for perpetual terms, like Lynton Spooner, uh, and and um, uh, I think Galambos, and even some uh, J. Neil Shulman to some extent. So, And some Randians who take her copyright ideas and say, well, it should never expire, um, and so they're more consistent, but then they're advocating a system where the human race would, like, would die because none of us could do anything because any action we take would be using some idea that someone else thought of thousands or hundreds of years ago, and you'd have right. to get permission, and you could never act because you could never get enough permissions, and we would just die. So I think that's the reason why they don't advocate for perpetual terms because they they sort of sense that it's sort of like the minimum wage. You know, we always point out like, uh, okay, you liberals, you lefties, believe in a minimum wage of ten dollars or fifteen dollars an hour. Why not just make it a thousand or a hundred? Make everyone right. rich. And when you when you say that, they say, well, less that's unreasonable. Like they sense that you're pushing their theory to its limit. They even they sense that if you made a, the minimum wage a thousand dollars an hour, uh, we would all be unemployed and we would all die. <laughs> so right. they know they can only push their socialism in little increments, right? Uh, which is what IP guys do. They know that you can get away with a, a 17-year patent term, and if it hurts. Technological development, no one really notices because it gets lost in the wash of history, and they can always claim that well there'd be more there'd be less innovation without the so they can always uh, explain it away. Um, but if they made it perpetual, it would be it would be blatantly obvious, and that's why they don't favor it, I believe.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I wanted to kind of tie it to the uh, coronavirus. Um, uh, I don't know whatever we're calling it these days, but the coronavirus vaccine specifically so the common argument for people that aren't familiar with your line of logic or that don't agree with it would be okay, why would a company uh, develop a coronavirus vaccine without patents like how can they protect their investment because maybe right. it costs like a billion dollars to uh, develop this vaccine and so like what's the incentive for them to right. do it like they always say like no one would uh pr- produce it so what's your answer to that
1: well, you noticed so, um, and I'll, I'll give you my perspective on that. But you notice the way you worded it was the um, the typical way that other people argue for it. So you said the argument is this, and then you said why would people do this? So you didn't give an argument; you asked a question. Okay. Right? You did two or three. You said how how would people have an incentive? Why would they, what would their incentive be? So you just asked two or three questions, and this right. is what's typically done in defense of IP. Instead of coming up with a coherent argument for, look, what's the purpose of law? What's the purpose of government? What's the purpose of rights? Um, What rights do we have? What are property rights? Why are they justified? How are they justified? What property rights should we be in favor of? And then coming up with an answer to that question, they just hit you with the barrage of questions like, well, what would be my incentive to innovate? Now, I just want to make an analogy here. Like, We libertarians – Oppose uh, taxation and redistribution of wealth and the welfare state, and if you explain why that's wrong, someone could say, well, how are you going to guarantee that poor people are going to get food? But see, you see, that's not an argument. It's basically a loaded question. I right. mean let me take an even more stark example. Let's suppose we have slavery like we did 150 years ago and um, – or whenever it was. Uh, and uh, and someone is an abolitionist like we are, and we say slavery is wrong, slavery is evil, slavery is immoral, slavery is unjustified, slavery should be abolished immediately now, no doubt about it. It's one of the clearest things you can argue for, right? And you come up, you, you explain this like in religious arguments, in ethical arguments, in economic. I mean, his, any argument, every argument is in favor of abolishing slavery and not having slavery, and that slavery is wrong. But then someone could just look at you and they could say, "Okay, but who's gonna pick the cotton?" Right now, you see, the, it's either not a genuine question or so. I think it's not a genuine question. So what? You
0: don't what think it's saying, genuine? You don't think it's a genuine question? Because I, I the, my issue is like I run into these uh, types of questions a lot, and people, I think people assume that we just.
1: No, um, we
0: are unrealistic, and like they are, the, they have the right. Uh, yeah, but I, know, mean, what, I mean,
1: I mean, I think that question, like, literally came up, like, how will the plantations survive? How will the economy of the South survive without the slave labor that we're based upon? Like, th- that was a legitimate question. But when you when you hurl that question in response to an argument for why we need to abolish slavery. So there's a there's an implicit but there. So like I say, slavery should be abolished for the following reasons. And someone says, but who would pick the cotton? So when you right. put that but in there, what you're saying is, my question presupposes uh, the assumption that we have to have the cotton picked no matter what. Like that's like unless you can guarantee like that's my highest value in the world is that. Human civilization has a way of having the cotton picked, okay? and unless you can guarantee that to me, I'm not going to go with the change you're proposing. The burden of proof is on you to make this change. We have a system that's working. The cotton is being picked. That's my highest value… And if you propose a new system, this free market system where the blacks are free and we can't make them pick the cotton, and you can't guarantee to me that the free market, this, this newfangled free market of yours is going to make sure that the free market gets the cotton picked, I'm not going to favor it, and, which is the mm-hmm. same thing that welfare liberals say when, when you say, well, the poor would be taken care of by private charity or… Uh, We don't need government education or public schools because you'd have private schools and you'd have charity. They will come back with you. They want this guarantee. They'll say, well, because for them, that little goal is their ultimate value, having the poor be taken care of or having everyone get an education. They'll say, well, unless you can guarantee that every kid will get a good education or unless you can guarantee that charity will take care of all the poor… Then you, you can't persuade me to get get rid of my welfare state, right? So and how, the same argument. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. i was just, no, saying, I was just I, the same I, argument ahead, is made for IP. The same argument is made for IP because people say, "Well, what's my incentive to innovate?" So what they're asking is, "I have in the back of my mind this presumption that we need innovation." And I can't figure out how innovation would happen without the system that I grew up with, that I'm used to, which is the um, which is the patent system. It's just like a Soviet peasant, right in 1970, and you say we should we should abolish the communism, and they would say, but who who's going to put food in the grocery stores? They don't know because they've lived under a government based system for their whole lives, right? and everyone is so used to patents and copyrights as being part of the framework of the way Western industrial capitalism does business. They can't even imagine. They just can't imagine. So the question can be legitimate if you say, could you help me figure out what a free world is going to look like? But you know, you could ask the same thing about the drug war. You could say, listen, if we abolish the drug war, Oh, what's going to happen to the prison industrial complex? What about all the people that are going to be unemployed now because we don't need as many prison guards? How are they going to get jobs? Or if we if we have a car, the cars emerge and we get rid of horses, and uh, what's going to happen to the buggy whip manufacturers? I mean, you can ask these questions, but you can't use a question as a loaded question, as a disguised argument to oppose a coherent, you know, moral or or, … or economic argument against a system. Um, so that was my precursor. So the question you asked is like what would the incentive be, etc.? So my answer is, number one, the question assumes that the current system does incentivize innovation and that without it, we would have less incentives to innovate uh, like in the in the pharmaceutical industry. And I think that's a false assumption in the first place because… Um, The incentive to innovate is to come up with a new product that you can sell to customers and make money off of. That's the – that's a simple answer. So there's always been innovation in human history and even before the modern patent system, and there always will be. So the advocates of the patent system, they don't say that there were – most of them who are not uh, making uh, hyperbolic, unjustifiable claims, right? Most of them would not say that without a patent system, there would be zero innovation. Even most Randians wouldn't say that if you got rid of the patent system, innovation would drop to zero. What their argument is is that without the patent system, there's a free rider problem, right? and there's this sort of um, – the the problem of competition, Mm -hmm. which means… Normally in the business world, if you come up with a new idea, like a new idea for a new venture, a new rest, a, a new restaurant, a new uh, a new company, and if it succeeds, then you 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 make a profit because you attract customers because you satisfy customers' needs. Like say a new like a, you come up with the idea of delivery pizza or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, you might be the only game in town for a little while, but eventually other people will notice. Hey, people like Having pizza delivered, I'm going to start up a, comp- a competing pizza delivery joint. You know, Pizza Hut's not the only game in town now. Domino's comes along, or whatever, um, and so competition emerges, and that are, that cuts into the profits of the first guy. And then you have a whole bunch of people competing for the same market. Right? This is how a competition works. How the free market works. And there's nothing wrong with that, but the point is it's hard to keep making a profit. You have to keep innovating, keep having a good reputation, keep serving your customers. You have to stay on your toes because there's competition around the corner all the time. right? So we're usually in favor of this. We're in favor of this process. We're in favor of competition, the threat of competition being a driving force that gives rise to innovation and keeps the original companies on their toes and keeps consumers satisfied pretty well. The problem is, according to advocates of, say, patent, the patent system, they think that with certain types of products like those based upon a design like a new invention or a new drug that it's – like it, it might take a while for me to compete with a pizza restaurant next door because I have to get some capital. I have to build a store. I have to hire drivers. I have to come up with a reputation and a new name and all that. I have to get investors or I have to save some money. It might take a while for me to compete with this guy. So competition happens, but it happens somewhat slowly. But Mm -hmm. in certain types of products like pharmaceuticals, the theory is if I I take five years developing the formula for a new drug and I test it out on patients, I get my FDA approvals, and I finally start selling it, the billions I spent researching it and developing it… I have to make it back. I have to so-called recoup my costs by charging a monopoly price or a high price. And if a competitor can just come in and just copy the exact formula, like make a generic version of my drug, they can sell it slightly lower than me and make tons of money because they didn't have – they don't have the billion dollars of R&D to pay back. right? Right. So they can compete with me right away immediately and very easily. So if you think about it, the objection here is that… We're in favor of competition but not if it's too easy. Okay? So they don't like it if competition happens too easily. Like, So they want to add up a monopoly protection for the original guy where he can prevent by the force of law people from competing with him for a certain number of years… Right? To make it harder for them to, or basically impossible for them to compete with him for a number of years so he can recoup his costs. That, that's the idea. But if you see, the logic is that competition is – competition is fine as long as it's kind of glacial and slow and old-school style. But if it's, if, if it's too easy for someone to compete with me, then we have to give the original guy a monopoly because competition can be unfair at some point. That's their basic idea. And I think that's basically the flaw in the argument, and I can tell you another way of looking at it too in a minute if you want, Uh, but I'll let you break in here because I'm monopolizing my answer.
0: Oh, it's it's okay. No problem. Uh, So yeah, a couple things. I guess uh, the first point I have – that's another great answer, by the way. Another – the first point I have is – I think most people – like the average person who doesn't know any of this stuff or isn't a libertarian, they kind of view this as a cop-out answer, and I definitely don't think it is. I think you have the right answer for sure. Right. But they view it as a cop-out answer, like, oh, he never actually gave me a specific of right. how this would happen or whatever. Right. So how do we how do we kind of bridge the gap between people like you and people like me that agree with you and, and the average person? Because there's millions and billions of them, and there's maybe thousands of us. So how do we kind of bridge that gap, well,
1: do you okay, think? Well, so- Okay, so it, it, it takes a while to explain all this, um, and it takes attention, right? and not everyone has that. Um, uh, so the, the, the answer is not a cop-out for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, there are some answers which I can get to, but number two, again, I want to point out that if someone asked me but who would pick the cotton… Let, let's say I don't know who would pick the cotton. Let's say we've had a slavery system forever… And if I say we need to abolish slavery because it's so wrong and people say, but who would pick the cotton? And I say, honestly, I don't know. Maybe the cotton industry is not profitable absent slave labor. See, but, but they well, not to
0: interrupt, but they would come back at you on this point by saying, but yeah, the system now we have uh, patents. We can have a coronavirus vaccine that can save lives. We can't afford not to have a coronavirus right. vaccine like patents be damned. We have to have it. So what you know, kind of keep that in mind, I guess.
1: Well, so, but but I would say that, okay, so there are two types of arguments for the patent system, and there are two types of arguments against it. So the two types are one is a moral or a principled argument, which we call deontological, like, which is a property rights argument, which is this Lockean idea that you have a right to basically be compensated for, or at least to control things that you create, right? The, the fruits of your labor. Mm-hmm. Um, like the ideas, although again, that argument makes little sense if you limit it, if it expires at a certain point in time. The second argument is more the utilitarian or the empirical argument, which is more like, listen, as a practical matter, if we have this system, yes, it will it will somewhat hurt some people, but overall, it will cause more innovation. Okay, So that's an empirical claim. What they're saying is that as a matter of fact, whether you like it or not, having a patent system… Does make the human race better off because, oh, on the whole, in the long run, it gives rise to more innovations than we would otherwise have and makes us all wealthier, right? So, in the coronavirus case, what they would argue, what they have to argue, is that given the patent system that we have, or some ideal patent system that they favor, which they never specify, by the way. Um, we have a greater chance of getting a coronavirus vaccine earlier than later or at all, right? That That's what their, their basically argument would be. Now, so the counterarguments to the patent argument would be, number one, the, a counter to the moral argument and a counter to the empirical argument. So my – I focus mostly on the first, um, and that's what I've mostly been talking about, but as for the second, I would – as a practical matter, point people towards the the, the book from about ten years ago by McKelly Boldrin, and Levine. It's a, Boldrin and Levine. It's called Against Intellectual Monopoly. It's online at their website againstmonopoly.org, and Chapter Nine has a whole chapter about pharmaceuticals and the actual history of that, and explaining in empirical, economic, utilitarian terms why it's simply just not true that the pharmaceutical industry depends upon the patent system and that without it you would still have innovation. We had 50, 60, 70 year periods of of history where some of the major uh, in like in the in the in the 19 late late 1800s, 1900s in Switzerland and Italy who were two of the biggest innovators in pharmaceuticals by the way. The US is one of them, but Italy and Switzerland have always been up there. And they didn't even have patent protection for pharmaceuticals for like a 50- or 60-year period, and they were among the top. So there's all kinds of empirical examples, and you, now, if you go into the economics of it, you can explain why. I mean the answer is obvious. There's a first-mover advantage, etc. Now, I would, if you want to think commonsensically about this, which it's hard to do for most people because they don't understand the way the patent system works. So they don't understand – so here's what most people think. There's 200 different centers around the world, or groups of people, all furiously racing to find a coronavirus cure, right, or vaccine. Right. And each one of them is hoping that they get there first and they file a patent on it. Or maybe there's two or three independent solutions or different solutions. They all get their patents. So what's the idea that they're hoping to be the first one and they file a patent and then and then what? They get a monopoly from the government. And they're the only one that can sell this vaccine to the 7 billion people around the world who need it?
0: That's the idea, yeah.
1: Does anyone really think that's going to happen? That's not going to happen because, number one, governments issue these patents, right? so governments always condition them on you have to be a pretty good public servant to get this monopoly privilege. In other words, all governments maintain the right… To issue what's called a compulsory license. The US government does this. Uh, They threatened to do this with the anthrax scare about about 15, 20 years ago when there was only one manufacturer and there wasn't enough uh, – I forgot the name of the drug. But there was a drug that could fight anthrax, Um, and there was someone who had a patent, and they had a monopoly on it, and they weren't making enough, and so the government threatened, look, we'll just issue a compulsory license, which means the government basically abrogates their patent and tells everyone anyone can use the this this pattern this information but you have to pay a little royalty to the original company but go, go ahead we, you don't need their permission anymore uh, so that threat's always there um, and that's what would happen there's no way that any company is going to get, uh, come up with the first vaccine for coronavirus and then the governments are going to let them go to court to stop other people from making it to supply the world it's just not going to happen so and, and not only that, What if there's five or six or ten companies that are getting close to this? right? They're all about to figure it out, and my guess is probably if there's a vaccine coming. It's probably going to be done by a lot of trial and error using the the standard medical science of the time, and they're all going to be trying similar techniques, and one of them is finally going to perfect it and get it right. Um, But the others will be close. Why should the guy that runs to the patent office first? Get a monopoly. What about the other guys? So you could you could argue that the patent system is disincentivizing some smaller companies because they're figuring like, well, I might figure out a vaccine in, in 12 months, but this big Merck, they might beat me by three months, and they have a big phalanx of lawyers, so I'm not even going to bother. right? So the threat of the first one getting the monopoly on it could be argued to dissuade other people from investing in it in the first place. So I would just say without the patent system, you'd still have lots of companies trying to do this as they are now knowing that the patent system won't give them full protection because they know that there will be a compulsory license issued. Um, it, again, most people don't understand the patent system, and you can see this like even in the answers of politicians like, like, like Donald Trump when he was asked someone – some reporter challenged him, why do you want to be the first? He says, I don't want to be the first. Now, that actually has a glimmer of insight because he has to recognize that it doesn't matter – okay, whoever comes up with it is going to get lots of credit. Whichever country comes up with it will get lots of credit, but whichever country, whichever person, whichever institute or research or hospital or medical scientist, whoever comes up with it, you know that this – the the vaccine uh, formula will be distributed around the world instantly. Like It's going to happen instantly, like within a week or a day. I don't know how, how, how quickly it will happen for people to gear up, but the knowledge will spread around the world, and everyone will say, finally, someone came up with this, which is a good thing, by the way. The, the good thing about having seven billion people is it extends the division of labor and the specialization of labor, so the more people we have, the better because the more geniuses we have, and all you need is one genius… … to come up with an idea that can be replicated by everyone else and make the entire human race wealthier. This is – I believe this is actually the source of wealth for human wealth. This is the source of human progress. Uh, it's the accumulation of knowledge over the over the generations, over the centuries. right? So every generation benefits from the accumulated wisdom and knowledge that previous generations have developed. And this is one reason why developing nations like China and others have caught up to the West… Relatively speaking, so quickly because all they have to do is emulate what we figured out in the Industrial Revolution right? with the West, America, Europe, Great Britain. Um, So they can just copy what we've done. I mean China used to be backwards, and it still is in some ways, but it used to be a backward, poor peasant society. Now they're making semiconductors and and sending spaceships to outer – sending rockets to outer space. How are they doing that? Because they just could borrow the technology that is propagated from, from the West, right? which is a good thing, agricultural techniques and modern medical techniques, and we can all learn from each other. And if just one person if it's out of seven billion people comes up with a cure for coronavirus, everyone can be saved, and if we had 100 billion people… The chances would be even higher that one of those 100 billion people would be smart enough to figure it out, right?
0: Right. Interesting. Uh, Again, another awesome answer. Um, I guess let me just transition a bit. You said uh, in this 2004 article – it's on LouRockwell.com. It's probably my favorite single article about uh, anarchy. Um, But at that point, back in 2004, you said that anarchists don't necessarily predict anarchy will be achieved, and you said you don't think it will be achieved. So I guess tying it into that, like what I was saying earlier, uh, how do we cross the bridge? And do you still share that same sort of pessimistic view that you did uh, 16 years ago? Like, do you think anarchy will ever be achieved? Let's say, oh, that's either, either in I, your lifetime, either in your um, lifetime or maybe like your kids.
1: I don't remember. Say, I don't. I'm not. Uh, you could be right. I don't remember saying um, that. I don't think it will ever be achieved. Um,
0: well, I don't, I, I don't want to put you on the spot. It just says you don't You don't think I'll, it will. Like You didn't put a time frame on it or anything, So, and that wasn't really the point of the article. You were kind no, of just no, saying I, that states I, I stand aren't just…
1: I, I agree with the idea that anarchy, anarchists per se – is. I mean my point there was it's not about prediction. It's not about right. predicting that we will have um, uh, a government-free society someday or a state-free society I should say to be precise. Um, I, I, I simply was saying that… You can't object to anarchy by, by by saying that we don't have it or that it won't come, because our our main claim is not a prediction. Okay, that's all I was saying. Um, I wasn't arguing in that piece that you shouldn't be an activist or that you shouldn't have hope or that, well, and I don't remember arguing that. I didn't. I might have been more pessimistic then than I am now. My my. Um, uh, I still believe. The main claims. Um, now, my view as to whether we will ever achieve anarchy. Um, here's my current view on that. And I could be wrong about this, but I, I tend to think that if we ever achieve anarchy, um, it really won't be because of us libertarian activists. Like we really won't even get any credit for it. Um, and 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 that's not to denigrate what we do, because we do achieve small victories for liberty here and there, but and every person saved from a little injustice, it matters, but I don't think that the reason I, – I, I think I did change my mind a little bit on something. I used to believe that the reason we have government and big government is because most people just are economically illiterate. They just don't understand, um, and if we can just educate enough of them, then that would solve the problem, which is sort of the libertarian activist idea um I'm I'm less confident of that view now for a few reasons. Number one, I believe even if everyone on the earth was economically literate, yeah, the government would probably be a lot smaller, but we would still have government because of basically the public choice problem like the it's just the law the law of large numbers like government's almost inevitable at a certain phase of human history because most people are living their lives and they don't have time to, Fight small intrusions, but concentrated interests have a reason to pool their resources to get special interest legislation passed that benefits them, right? That only only hurts everyone a tiny degree. Like, so if you get some special privilege or some law that protects you from competition, like the patent system, for example, patent system is actually a good example because most people don't understand it, they don't care. And it only – like it might make your iPhone cost $5 more than it otherwise would. I don't know. Yeah, I
0: think the classic example there is like orange juice. Like if an orange juice uh, subsidy causes the price of orange juice to go up by like $0.10 per gallon or whatever, no one's really going to care or fight back because it's $0.10. But the people that are benefiting are making like a boatload of money because it's $0.10 times you know, a hundred million or whatever. So,
1: and that's the public choice argument. So, I always think the public choice economics almost explains why the state is almost inevitable at emerging at a certain point, because it's even if everyone understood economics, there are still some people, even if they understand economics, it's still in their interest to lobby for this law, because it'll make them richer, and it's not in the interest of everyone else to fight it. So, I tend to think that handing out you know individual students for individual liberty pamphlets on why the minimum wage hurts people at thanksgiving dinners to your to your uncle you know it's not the way to you know or standing on a bench at your university and yelling it passing by clueless or, liberals.
0: or screaming into a microphone like i do right like basically i should shut down the podcast is what you're saying
1: well no i'm <laughs> i'm simply saying i don't think that's I don't think that is the way to achieve liberty. I mean look, my whole avocation for the last 25 years has been doing a version of all this. I write. I try to explain things. I do it for different reasons. I do it for, self, for self-knowledge. for self I do it because it's the right thing to do. Look, even if I'm going to go down on the ship, I want to be the guy that fights off the pirates to the last second just because it's the right thing to do. Okay, Now, that's a pessimistic, cynical uh, way of looking at it, which is not really my view. So here's what I think now. I actually do believe anarchy… Well, there's a ch- a good chance we will achieve it, but I think it will be organic and and it will it will be because of of a couple of things.
0: With within um, your lifetime, to be to clarify, like within like your and my lifetime or like, um, your kids' lifetime, maybe.
1: Well, it depends upon it depends upon how steep this 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 curve is that we're on. This so. Ever since about the year 1800, we've been on this exponential curve, the Industrial Revolution, right? If you look at it, it's striking. Basically, for all of human history, until around 1800, the standard of living was roughly the same. Right, um, the average GDP per person, if you want to call it, was roughly the same. It started exponentially growing in around 1800. Now there are different theories as to why this happened. And now we're still on this curve, and there's been more curves since then. We have the Bitcoin curve, we have the technology curve, the computer curve, the cell phone curve. You know, this all adding to this, right? And then with the international and international trade has been expanding since the since World War II, linking the whole world together. And the population has been growing, as I said, and our technology keeps growing, so we keep amassing this this expanding um, degree of technology. Now, my personal view, there's all kind of theories about why the industrial revolution happened. Like, um, and people like uh, Deidre McCloskey has written upon it, and I think her, her ideas about bourgeois values and this kind of stuff. Um, uh, the classical explanation was that we had finally we had a solid Western kind of British European Foundation and protection of property rights, and property rights gave the gave the uh, the sort of infrastructure for the development of of, of capitalism, right, and free markets. Um, Hoppa, hermann Hoppa, who's one of my favorite uh, and most uh, thinkers and influenced me probably most. He's got a, a provocative article where he 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 explains he he argues that this is not a plausible explanation, like. There were basically solid property rights in England for hundreds of years before this, before the Industrial Revolution, so that can't be the explanation, and I I agree with him. Now, his explanation is that he believes human intelligence has always been evolving and increasing um, and that around 1800, we reached a tipping point where, um, at at least in the Western countries, um, uh, 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 where… capitalism basically started that the average IQ level or intelligence level reached a certain point where you had uh, so you always had these outliers who were geniuses like like Leonardo da Vinci and Aristotle, you know all these guys from the old days, right? But he's, his idea is that the problem is the average intelligence of the population wasn't high enough for them to emulate these ideas. Right, but once you reach a certain point, now these great ideas of the the engineers, the inventors, the innovators, now they could be replicated by the average or, or slightly above average person, and so then they started spreading. Um, I think it's a it's a plausible thesis, but I don't think it's it's hard to prove that. My, my view is slightly different. My view is that. Um, what we, what we have achieved was inevitable. It was just uh, – it's sort of like when you have um, um, a fake boom instig- instigated by the Fed, uh, the Federal Reserve's uh, uh, easy money policy, right? inflation and easy credit. Um, you have a fake boom. You know that it's going to be followed by, by a, a bust, the boom-bust cycle, which is the Mises-Austrian theory. Um, now, you don't know when that bust is going to happen. You can't predict that. And something random might spark it off, like in 2008, 2009, some, you know, some housing collapse, something, or, or like right now, maybe, maybe we had a bust looming, and the coronavirus sparked it off, totally unrelated. Something will pop the bubble though, it's like a balloon. So I think similar to that, I think that we had the industrial revolution exponential curve coming, and when it was going to happen, it's hard to predict, but I think we reached a critical mass around 1800 of Enough people, right? So enough specialization and division of labor, enough people in relatively free countries with property protected, which is the, basically Europe and, and the new and the New World, America, um, <clears throat> that it finally these ideas, the, these technical ideas, basically these engineering and these technical recipes started spreading and they started accumulating on top of each other, and then the genie was out of the bottle, and that's where we are now. So I don't know. How long this curve it's like Moore's law? like Moore's law sounds like a law, but it's just an empirical description of what's been going on, but it seems accurate so far, like the 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 continual progress in memory uh, 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 transistor size going smaller and power levels going lower and speed going up, and you know processing power going up. Um, I believe there are several things happening in society right now that could eventually lead to a cascading effect. Uh, like an increase on this almost vertical wall of exponential growth. Bitcoin is one of them. Uh, 3D printing could be another. Robotics could be another. AI, which I'm skeptical of, could be another. But we're going to have some version of AI, even weak AI. We have weak AI right now.
0: Um, how, about, how about just uh, the internet itself? Um, the I internet think that, itself, that's, yeah, yeah, I one think the internet – yeah.
1: And and not not only that, cell phones and and cell phone video cameras, like that's another deterrent against the state. All these things are accumulating against each other, and plus international trade. Um, And if you think about it, this coronavirus thing, one one interesting thing about it – so there are debates in libertarian circles and in the world about open borders and free immigration, right? Um, and the libertarians that are against open borders, they don't usually oppose it. For the standard reason, which is that it would drive down wages or have too much competition, theirs is more of a political thing like you don't want these socialists to come in and have the right to vote basically um, or get welfare that we have to pay for. So it's more of a political argument, but now that everyone is working online, I think that – so if a a company realizes, hey, my workforce – yeah, I'm going to let my workers work from home five days a week. And they can still get the job done. You know, the next thing that's going to occur to them is well, if they're 30 miles down the street, or maybe they could be 100 miles away, maybe they could be 5,000 miles away. So if everyone goes online, that will almost automatically bring about open borders in an economic competition sense, right? Because why would I pay a chemical engineer $180,000 a year? If he's just working from home 30 miles away anyway, I could hire a guy in India and pay him 30000 a year, right? So mm-hmm. – and I think we might start seeing this happen, so it could be everyone saying, oh, I get to work from home now. It's like be careful what you wish for because we might have – anyway, so my view is that if we have enough technological growth – I mean – I'm kind of a hyper-utopian sci-fi nerd guy in a way. So I imagine in my most optimistic moments, I imagine a future – and again, I don't know if this is in my lifetime, maybe my child's lifetime. I can't imagine, but if – exponential curves can can change things really quickly. If Bitcoin becomes the money in 15 years, 10 years, 20 years… That will change everything, right? Just as an example, right? If 3D printing becomes really viable in, I can't see it being really viable for 30 years. Like you can't imagine 3D printing printing an iPhone or a coffee machine right now, but in 50 years, maybe. Uh, self-driving cars, robots, you know, uh, personal space travel or, or flight, uh, all these things. Can happen, but I, I, I'm always pessimistic about these Omni magazine type predictions that it's going to happen in 15 years. I give it 50. So I say within 50 years, I could imagine a world that is so vastly wealthy. And not only that, everyone has so much actual power because they're not dependent upon anyone. No one is poor. Everyone has robots, everyone has machines that can make their own food. You know, everyone has little armies of nanobots that protect them from invaders. So the state doesn't like get abolished. It just becomes like a zoo, like like sort of like when you go to England, right? And you see, you go to the Tower of London, you see where the Queen used to torture people, and there are monarchies there, and people like to see her wave at the crowds, but she has no real power. Um, Yeah, the state. So I think, in a, in a almost the Marxian communist way, the state will wither away, just because the power of every person will increase, and their need for the state will diminish. And I think that at the same time, the natural libertarian instincts of most people will be enhanced, because most people who are wealthy and somewhat educated, they're they're usually pretty easy. Happy-go-lucky. They don't really want to interfere in other people's business. They don't mind if people are gay or a different color or have a different religion. They don't really care. They don't give a fuck, Um, especially if it costs them a lot. right? Um, So that's my sort of optimistic vision for the future. So I do think that that's the best case for liberty to be achieved. It's just us getting wealthy and technologically powerful enough. Now, the big question is… For me, and this is my pessimistic or cynical side. It's the Fermi's paradox. You ever heard of Enrico Fermi, the famous physicist, and he had this haunting question, which was, where are they?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've right? heard of
1: that. So yep. – so, and I, I I, do believe that we have we have no – there's no life – uh, we've never detected life in outer space. Now, why is that? So th- the answer to me is either… Either we're the only ones, which is actually my opinion, um, or everyone that evolves snuffs themselves out when they reach a certain level of Um, civilization—the gray goo idea, right? Like, like we're like at the cusp of the gray goo moment. Like within the next 50 years, we will, we will kill our whole, our whole race off by some weird device. That explodes the earth or uh, nanotechnology run amok or biochemical warfare or nuclear war or something, and that is my main concern to be honest, that we're at the cusp of the point where every civilization finally kills itself off because if you can have a 3D printer that prints an atomic weapon, that's a scary thought, right?
0: Uh, it is, yeah. Um, I think a lot of that kind of hype. Some of that's maybe overhyped. Like people in the government or mainstream say that, you know, if everyone had nukes, it would be uh dangerous. I guess it would be, but uh, I'm not sure it would be like as dangerous as people think. Because I don't think people actually want to use use those weapons against other people. But I I guess it only. But I guess it only takes one. It only takes one to like ruin it. Yeah, yeah,
1: Yeah, I agree. Most people don't, and most people wouldn't, and. But it only takes one. That's the pro- so. Here's the other problem. I mean, I actually I think that so like libertarians. So here like this interminable question about, uh, oh, I guess you guys would allow private ownership of nukes. So now when they say you would allow, say so they're thinking in a status context where the government controls everything. We have to have a law that determines what you have permission to do in your life or not. Um, you know, I'm more of a, I won't say I'm a paleo libertarian, but I believe in Liberty and the libertarian ideas are more of a explanation of and prescription for the types of actual basic laws we should have among each other. But there's lots of other institutions that have to emerge and that would emerge and that have emerged that govern human behavior, like private arrangements, contracts, uh, you know, social norms, churches, things like that. Um, Although in my future world there would be no churches and everyone would be atheist and they would have grown out of all this childish, I mean I think the main problem is we came out of the trees too soon, but that's just my opinion. Um, <laughs> but um, but so like I could imagine like anyone who wants a nuclear weapon they basically would be uninsurable, right? And they wouldn't be able to have any neighbors because they're just too risky, they're too dangerous. Um, so. I, I think that there would be natural – and plus, no one would really need a nuke in a, in a more basically libertarian, free-market society where everyone is just going about their business. I mean all these horrible killings that we have like you know, the Las Vegas shooting and these the nightclub shootings, I sometimes wonder why aren't there more because it's just so easy to just go into a crowd and mow people yeah. down with, with a gun. Uh, … or even a, even a knife, I mean, even a, a sword or something, and, and it, it doesn't happen that often because most people – most people are not sociopaths. Um, right. This is how the human race evolves. So most people have empathy. They're born with empathy, and they're sociable. They're sociable creatures. They value each other, and they recoil from this stuff. Um, they want to avoid violence if they can. So sociopaths are always going to be a, a tiny minority… And as long as they don't get their hands on nuclear weapons or planet-splitting, you know, Death Star type things, I guess that they won't snuff out human life.
0: Yeah, that's kind of where I'm. That's we, a lot of that's where I'm at too. Topics. I
1: think. IP. Yeah. This is a totally different topic than IP, isn't it?
0: <laughs> it is. No, I had a, I had a bunch of topics, and I actually had two more topics that I kind of wanted to get to. Um, Go ahead. And uh, yeah, I guess the first one kind of ties into something that, that we mentioned earlier. And it's it's a huge topic in the news. Uh, you know, the Black Lives Matter thing and the racism thing. Uh, Brian Ellison, he's a comic. He tweeted out on June 8th uh, about Tom Woods and Dave Smith, another comic. And he said libertarians obviously have a problem with racism. And basically like accusing uh, Tom Woods, especially of being a racist. And that just kind of struck me as like offensive. Like I'm a f- big fan of Tom Woods and I'm – I don't know him personally, but I don't, I'm, I can say that like, he's not a racist. And on that level, it really like offended me and pissed me off because he's just making these allegations. But another thing that, that kind of made me think was did these people ever actually define the term racism? And I know one thing you're great at, and you've corrected me on Twitter over the years, believe it or not, is you really want to define terms clearly. So like, what does this mean specifically? What does that mean specifically, et cetera? Um, so I guess, I guess kind of what are your broad thoughts on, like, racism as it relates to, like, the Libertarian Party? Because we've heard for years, you know, Ron Paul is racist or Lou Rockwell is racist. And obviously it doesn't have any um, – they generally don't have any evidence or any proof of this. Um, that's one aspect of it. Uh, two, I guess, would be, like, how is racism defined and – I guess my hot take on this is I think statism is actually way worse than racism. Um, statism yeah. affects everyone, and it, it affects minorities, um, things like the drug war, the minimum wage, etc. So I think we have a statism problem, not a racism problem. But I, I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are, and also uh, how would a libertarian society handle racism? Because I guess that's like mm. the normie you know, question that, that mm. somebody would throw at you. So take that however you want to go with it.
1: Okay. Uh. You know, I, I like all, all intelligent, thoughtful adults nowadays. I have my own opinions about various things, but I try not to speak out too definitively about things that I know that I'm not uh, an expert on. And, and like one would be the definition of race and or even race and racism. I mean, I I, I sometimes wonder. Uh, we're called the human race, so race apparently applies to humans. So I don't know what the sub. I don't know why you would call the different race, the different colors or, or variations, a race. So I'm not an expert on this. I, the whole thing makes no sense to me. Um, I, I vaguely recall hearing something about this Brian Ellison accusation. Of course, I think all these accusations are complete uh, virtue signaling, SJW, PC nonsense. Uh, I've gotten to the point. I mean I'm personally opposed to racism, and one reason I'm a libertarian is and, and, and is because I'm an individualist. Now, I'm not a thicker, so I don't think that that's necessarily part of libertarianism. You can be a racist libertarian I guess if you want. Um, and But again, I'm, I'm not sure what a racist is because every time I think of a clear example of something that's racist… It's basically either an act, it's accompanied by an act of violence or by a law, a state law, right? Like again, that's the main problem. So I agree with you on that. Um, and I have some black libertarian friends who agree with that. It's like I mean if you get rid of the, if you get rid of the legal aspect, like a law that treats people differently or, or enforcing your racist opinions with the use of force, If you get rid of all that, then what's left? All that's left is basically uh, preferences. So, you know, if you're a black person and you prefer that your children marry other black people, or if you're Jewish and you want, you you get annoyed when your kids start dating Christians. um, Is that racist? Is it? Right. I made
0: that point. Yeah, and the thing with me is, uh, the way I look at it is these people lump in like. There's a guy sitting on his back porch in Alabama, deep, deep south, let's say, you know, the, this stereotype, and he, he hates black people, and he makes like a black joke to his friend who's with him on the porch. Right. They they kind of lump that in with somebody who specifically like kills black people just because of their skin color. Well, and to me, and that's think- that's the fallacy. They're two totally different things. Like one should be outlawed. The other one, you know, maybe a uh, polite society frowns upon certain types of uh, jokes or whatever, but... It, it's not really an issue uh, in society because he's not really hurting anybody by doing that. Whereas, as opposed to like the other one, is uh, violating somebody's rights specifically.
1: Well, and I think the problem is, see, most people now have the status mentality, right? So most people now they're not like libertarians. Like libertarians, we distinguish clearly in our minds between things that are unethical or immoral and things that are that should be illegal. So right. we we always are careful to say that. There's only a subset of things that are immoral that should be illegal, right? So it's a it's a proper subset. Uh, not everything that's immoral should be illegal. But once you're part of democracy and once you have this mainstream attitude, you you can make anything you don't like illegal. Then people start fearing bad opinions. Like if you have if you don't like black people, you might want to put some. You might want to make a law that embodies that, right? So. They sense that there's a danger. It's just like the IP things. like people – they're in favor of IP, but they don't want it to last forever because they sort of sense that it would be too dangerous. And likewise, if you're – they sort of sense that if any opinion anyone has can be made into a law, they get nervous about bad opinions because – but if you believe in a strict separation of law and morals or, or however you want to put it like we libertarians do, you don't really have that fear. Like, okay, you can be a racist as long as you don't want to – use violence against people or make it a law then you're not really a big problem right um, now my personal my personal view as a not as a libertarian but just as who i am i despise everything about tribalism i mean i think i, I don't even like to say i'm an american to be honest i or a Texan or a Louisiana. I mean, you know, I'm embarrassed
0: to say I'm embarrassed to say I'm an American nowadays with how bad things have gotten. So yeah, I agree with you. Well,
1: then. I'm 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 too randy to be embarrassed because I I don't I don't take blame for anything that's not my fault. It's not my fault that I was born here, but I don't like to take credit for it either. But I, the point is, I don't I just I don't think that's my identity. Like I. I don't like say I'm a human. I'm, I'm a sapient. Okay, now we're the only sapients that we know of that exist, right? Now, no, just to clarify, I know Tom very well. Tom is not a racist at all. He's a great guy, uh, and Dave Smith is great too. I mean, this is all ridiculous. I don't know what Ellison charged him with. Uh, the problem now is that these SJW guys have diluted You know, they've hurt the term. It's like it's like the feminists. They've not the uh, the ultra feminists, right? If you call anything rape, then People that are victims of actual rape now, their claims are diluted and crowded in with with a boyfriend that pesters you too much or or, or date rape or you know what I mean. Um, right. I it's so. But my ideal society, the one I was kind of uh, kind of uh, doing sci-fi nerd stuff about earlier, I imagine a future human society that's very cosmopolitan. Basically, it's a religious, although people want to have their things whatever. But it's basically extremely. Incl- like, I live in Houston. I, I'm not a huge Houston booster, but one thing I like about Houston, Texas is it's, and they were saying this in the George Floyd thing, it is the most diverse city in the U.S. It's very, it's like one fourth white, one fourth black, one fourth Asian, and one fourth Hispanic. I mean, or something like that, roughly. It's very diverse, and everyone gets along pretty well as far as I can tell. Um, it's nice. There's different cultures. No one pretends they are what they aren't, it's, but it's it's not a problem. I, I just foresee a future human society where it, people treat each other as individuals basically, and they appreciate the diversity, which is part of the free market. right? It's called – it's the division of labor and the specialization of labor. The only purpose – the only reason we trade is we have differences. I'm better… Relatively better, it's something than you are. That's why we have trade. If everyone was equally the same, we would have no trade and then less reason to interact with each other and then less empathy because you'd have less reason to socialize, and it all goes together. Um, so uh, uh, yeah, I'm against nasty racism, but on the other hand, I my personal view is that the way that the word racism is used now… Um, in a sense, everyone's racist according to this broad definition because everyone has some preferences. And one thing I don't like, of course, is the the double standard, right? Um, um, if, if a white guy doesn't want his daughter his daughter to marry a black guy, he's a racist, right? But mm-hmm. the opposite is almost true, like in the black community, it seems to me. And here's the other thing: if you're a white guy, like I apparently am. Uh, you're not supposed to have an opinion. I mean, I've tried to work for a position in my life where I don't have to give a, a, a damn about what anyone says. I, you know, I have my opinion. Screw mm-hmm. But right. it's, you know, not everyone has that luxury. So some people have to be, you know, especially leaders of, of, of like you know, Amazon and all these companies. You'll get fired. I, I just heard a couple days ago that the the CrossFit guy just is losing all kinds of deals because he made some bizarre. He made some a bizarre comment that the whole racial riot thing about George Floyd, he called it Floyd 19, making some kind of like analogy to COVID 19. And I and everyone is like uh, disassociating from this guy now, and he's apologizing. I don't even understand what. Honestly, I'm so out of touch with the modern SJW types. I don't even understand what's supposed to be offensive about that.
0: Me too. I, I feel like they're totally different people, I guess. Um, uh, all right, let's get to the last topic, because you've been really generous with your time, and let's uh, kind of put put an end to it here, and uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, your last interview with Tom Woods was uh, about a month ago. I liked that interview a lot. Uh, you guys went over some weaknesses in uh, the libertarian position, and I really enjoyed that part of the uh, discussion. That might have been my favorite part. Um, have you thought about that uh, any more since then, or have you come up with any more examples of – Possible weaknesses in our position um, that you can go over with us?
1: I don't remember any new thoughts since then. I I did just hear his recent interview with Chris Borer, I think, who has a Mm -hmm. new book out on ethics of anarcho-capitalism. And I think Tom asked him about that near the end. He had had a couple of interesting answers. I think he was talking about… Animal uh, rights, right? Animal rights and children's rights. Yeah, so I… I agree. That was actually a, a, a good point. Those are I don't know how we can have I don't know how we can have more so-called work or progress on this. Like it's not really a research program. I mean, sometimes social theorists try to, you know, ape the physical sciences a little too much like I've been doing research on this for 25 years. It's like it's not really research in the sense of like doing experiments and figuring things out. It's not like we're converging on an obvious answer we can test and make sure it's right. you know. But but still, I,
0: I – So you kind of think animal rights has been settled by like Rothbard or something like that? Is that kind of where, you, where no, you're at on that one? No, no. Um.
1: Well, no. I think that uh, – well – I had this view, which I think they all – they kind of alluded to. So my view is this. Um, whenever – and, and this was alluded to by uh, Chris in his discussion of lifeboat scenarios, which I which I liked. Um, you can always find a gotcha-type question, like like how would your system handle this, and it could be difficult to figure it out. And it's like and, – and, and by the way, if you answer the question, then people will accuse you of being an armchair philosopher like, oh, are you the king of the world? You can give the answers like, well… You ask me for my answer, and when I give it to you, you keep <laughs> – I mean. But so it's like, uh, you know, got two guys on a boat; they gotta, they're gonna starve. But to me, the question is, uh, there are in tra- there are sometimes intractable, intractable problems or difficult issues in human life. Um, and just because libertarianism doesn't solve everything perfectly or obviously, uh, doesn't mean it's flawed. The question is, well, what about how would democracy handle it? How would socialism handle that? I mean, no, no system is going to handle a lifeboat situation great because it's just, it's a horrible situation by definition, right? It's like, mm-hmm. how would come if you have a communist government on the mainland and two guys are off in a lifeboat? How does the fact that there's communism solve this problem? It doesn't. I mean, so so yeah, the, so even if even if libertarianism breaks apart and doesn't solve these problems. Nothing else does either. The only Mm -hmm. thing that would solve it would be a god who just says, listen. I'm either going to take care of it, or if I'm not, I'm going to lay down the rule, and you have to listen to me, and that's just all there is to it. No debate. I mean, okay, fine. So so I I tend to think lifeboat problems, um, they can be interesting, but the main purpose of political philosophy is we… we, this is the Randian enemy coming out. See, Rand was talking. She dismissed lifeboat things too because she said, "Look, the purpose of ethics is to come up with a practical system for people to live a life on this earth among each other, and the rules have to be the rules for, for better lack of a better term, the normal people." Okay, so we have to have a way for the normal people, that is the functioning adults, to … to survive and flourish and prosper and get along with each other, and then with the surplus of wealth that we have, then we can take care of the of the children and the people in comas and the retarded people or whatever right? or the poor. It's sort of like on an airplane. They say if there's an emergency, you put your mask on first, and then you put it on your child. It's not because you care more for yourself than your child that you put your own mask on first. It's because you have to be around, right, to be awake and to take care of your child in case something happens. You just have to do. It's just it's just logic. And some people like emotion over logic. They would say that's cold hearted, right? It's sort of like the COVID thing when people say, when when people on our I don't know where your where your take on the COVID thing is. I think the whole thing I agree with like Woods and uh, Jeff, other people um, who are uh, totally opposed to this lockdown stuff. Oh yeah,
0: 100%. Um, well go ahead. I'll let you answer, and then I'll tell you what I think. Go ahead.
1: Well, I'm just gonna say that it's it, it's not unreasonable to say that okay, COVID, if it's real, um, could threaten let's say millions of people. Okay, it's still out of billions, so it's it's horrible, but it's you know the flu kills millions too or something. So you know it's still not good, but okay. So let's say COVID threatens lots of lives, but shutting down the economy does too um, and so but then you get these stupid emotional you know hard on their sleeve liberals who say things like uh, oh you're putting you're putting the the, uh, the the stock value of Wall Street corporations above human life which to me is the is the most glib dishonest illiterate argument you could imagine it's like even if you're a pure utilitarian, you got to understand that human life is dependent upon a functioning economy. Right. You you will literally kill people by shutting this economy down. There are people committing suicide now. I'm sure there are people that can't get they can't they're losing their houses. They're going into depression or even worse. Uh, so there's a there's clearly a trade-off of even if you you know you can't have an infinite cost to stop a, a, a finite amount of damage from the COVID thing. So I'm just saying yeah. it's similar to me. Though, so some some people have an emo, an emotive or an emotional argument instead of if you look at things passively and coolly and logically and rationally, you know they'll accuse you of being uh, having no heart and having no no compassion. Mm-hmm. Which I think is ridiculous. What's yeah, no, day? my
0: take t- my take on COVID is that it's totally absurd and bordering on like just a total hoax. Um, you know, there's been some people on the fringes that have claimed that like the virus was never actually isolated or proven to exist. I don't know if I'd go that far, but it's interesting. I just think the whole thing's absurd. Um, it's a lot of people that were involved in the climate change uh, nonsense or bullshit the same types of people, including Greta Thunberg, were involved in this. So it's really kind of transparent to me, like, what's going on is that it's just used for more government control, and they kind of wanted to push it as far as they could, and now they kind of are backing off as people are starting to wake up a little bit. That's kind of my broad take on it. But, yeah, I think the lockdown was totally unjustified. Um, I've talked about in previous episodes. I don't know if I've actually done one specifically saying, like, why I think the lockdowns were unjustified, but – yeah, I I don't think I mean I did some episodes on it specifically back in May, but I just and the funny thing is at first I thought it was real like the first week first couple of days right. I thought oh man like this is bad exponential growth you know it's gonna it's gonna affect everybody it's gonna kill tons of people and then I kind of just realized like I don't know anybody that died from this so how bad is it really?
1: Um, yeah, that's that's roughly my take on it. Uh, I'm a, a kind of allergic to conspiracy theories, so. I tend to think most people believe what they're saying to some degree, but there's a, a weird overreaction that sort of spiraled out of control. And now the problem is, like Trump probably realizes it was it was a mistake, but he can't admit that now, right? Because then he won't he it would hurt his re-election chances, right? He right. can't fire Fauci or what I mean. So it's now everyone's stuck in this um, in this game where anyway so yeah um it's not
0: yeah it's not a great situation um i guess final question because it's it's running uh you know you've been super generous with your time and i appreciate it um do you think biden or trump wins uh later on or you can just not answer it all and just hang up oh no an i've third question <laughs>
1: uh, well i've had I've, okay. I've got some bets with a couple of friends and i've been i've been saying this for a couple of years uh although i will uh, let me presage this. I've I predicted races before, and I'm almost always wrong. I didn't think Trump would win last time. I didn't – I thought John Kerry would win when he ran. So I have a bad prediction record, but um, I've been predicting uh, ever since Trump won that I think that whoever the Democrats nominate will win. So I think Biden will win. I think it's a no-brainer, um, and it, it's just because of demographics. Um, it's uh, – Trump barely won last time. Right. I mean he lost the popular vote by like 3 million, right. and he barely won the electoral college, um, and only because of two or three surprise states. And I think it was because the Democrats – see, the Democrats are really stupid. Um, I think they're stupider than the Republicans and what they do. I mean uh, but they all seem to sabotage themselves because they always tack to the center because they get away with as much as they can, or, or they tack the wrong way. Um I think the Democrats didn't know Trump could win because most Democrats are in a bubble. right? So they – like you'll hear people say, I don't know anyone who voted for George Bush or Donald Trump. Now, us Republicans – I'm not a Republican, but uh, us the, – the ones of us who are not on the other side, let's say, we know people – we're not – like I wasn't surprised when Obama won. right? Most Republicans weren't surprised. They, they knew it was inevitable. right? They weren't mm-hmm. happy with it, but they weren't surprised. They weren't surprised when Bill Clinton won. But when Trump won or when Bush won or when Bush won re-election, the Democrats are like – they seem to be perplexed. They're like, how can this happen? I don't know anyone who – like they think – they're just baffled. Mm -hmm. So – but I think that they've been woken from their slumbers. Like now they realize I don't understand how. I don't understand how my country could ever vote for Trump, but I know that it's possible. And so this time we got to make, you know, we got to stop him. So I think they're going to come out in droves to stop Trump this time. And all they need to do is have fifty thousand more people, I think, in a couple of key states, and Trump will lose. Um, yeah, yeah. And Biden, okay. Biden's a blithering idiot, of course. And I think even they know that, but they don't care. Um, so I think that Kamala Harris will be our next president uh, within two or three years. Um, or Val Demings, whoever, whichever black female Democrat he picks.
0: Yeah, I actually uh, have quite a bit. I have like a five-figure bet on Biden not even winning the Democrat nomination. I made it a couple months ago, so that's basically money lit on fire that I probably shouldn't have done. But <laughs> well, it pays I, out pretty I, I, well. It pays out I'll pretty take, well if I'll, it actually. Hits,
1: I'll, so. I'll take that bet because I can't lose. Because if I if I if I if I win my bets. Uh, if I win my bets, we're screwed, and if I lose my bets, I'm <laughs> happy. So I'd be, I'd be happy to take any. I just, every happy. time I
0: see, every time I see Biden talk or hear him talk, it's just like, how can he? How can they actually go through with giving him the nomination? I just, I don't see it. But uh, I, apparently, I, I,
1: I, I agree. They're going to go for he's, it. See what happens. I think he's. I think. I think it's becoming more apparent he's got early like
0: he dementia. Actually has dementia. Yeah, he can't I think talk, he has dementia. So it's, yeah.
1: um, but I don't yeah. think they care at this point. And uh, you could be right. Uh, I think it's too late. I thought two or three months ago there was a chance that the Democrat uh, That's party.
0: would – yeah, like three months ago maybe, but
1: I thought there was a chance they would out, find a but, way, uh, they would find a way to, to get another one. But um, I think it's too late. I think they're stuck with them now. Uh, but unless so like the Republicans have done that a couple of times, like when they nominated uh, Bob Dole, you know, or John McCain. Um, Or or the Democrats nominated uh, uh, the the bobblehead guy, uh, Dukakis. I mean, sometimes you nominate a guy, and everyone sort of knows, oh, we're roped into supporting a guy who can't win. And they just like it was their time. Like Bob Dole was a perfect like it was his time to get nominated, but he's not going to win. And I think that Biden would normally be like that, Um, but. So I could be I could be pleasantly surprised. I'm not going to vote for Trump, but I I I gotta say I do hope he wins. Uh, if only because it will drive it, you know the one of the main pleasures I get out of after paying my extremely crazy tax bill is that you know I know that the Democrats and the liberals are being driven nuts by the fact that Trump they have to call him Mr. President. You know, that's one of the few pleasures I get. It's not much, but uh, it's, it's something, right? Yeah, I think if and to be honest, from my perspective, Biden is not as scary as like uh, Sanders would have been. But the problem is, Biden won't be the president. He'll be he'll be the child idiot who uh, the handlers and everyone else is controlling. So it depends on who the handlers are. You know, mm-hmm. who the uh, the regent or whatever you call it, the guy that advises the king who's too young to uh, do his job.
0: Right. Yeah, Biden definitely won't be running the country.
1: Um, so anyway, you st- on that Wait, note, let me ask you, oh, go ahead.
0: You, go ahead. Go. Yeah, go.
1: Do you still think that Biden is going to uh, yeah. not get the nomination?
0: Uh, I mean, I would say, well, the betting markets now, it's like 90% that says Biden will get the nomination, which is a little bit interesting because, like, why is it not at 95% or even 99%? Uh, right. They're still giving it, like, a 10% chance. Well, now it's like 9% chance. Um and whenever I actually put the bet on, it was maybe like a 80 percent chance, roughly like 75, 80 percent. Um, and it's creeped up to like 91 percent now. Hillary Clinton's at like five percent. And then that's basically it. Um, yeah, I, I just kind of thought that Hillary would jump in at some point. But I guess as time goes on, like that's way more unrealistic.
1: I, th- I, I thought so, too, so. but I think it's too late now.
0: It could be. I guess we'll find out and yeah, I kind of just like lit that money on fire basically but well, well, did, you know you gotta, did gotta take a en- chance.
1: Didn't she endorse him already?
0: Uh, I think so, but you never know. I mean with these things, maybe Joe Biden uh commits suicide, you know, the Clintons get to him or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah.
1: All right. Well I enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks for calling and putting up with my I do have long winded answers
0: sometimes. No, so. no, I just I kind of had the opposite thing. I was thinking, like, uh, I hope I'm not taking too much of your time, but it seems like you were uh, eager to uh, go into detail on these answers, and I I appreciate it. And it's funny, too. A lot of the things that you brought up were uh, notes that I had written down, and you brought them up, like, before I I brought them up. So that was really interesting. Uh, Hopefully we can do it again. Uh, I'm going to edit this and uh, get it posted as soon as I can, but I appreciate your time. And and, there uh,
1: was a – let me tell you one thing real quick. There was uh, a – are you a Rush fan? Rush Limbaugh or the, the no, band? No, the band oh.
0: Rush. Uh, I've heard of them, but not, okay. um, not right. particularly.
1: Well, a lot of libertarians like Rush. Okay, Tom Woods and me and other uh, – partly because they – some of their albums were influenced by Ayn Rand, so there's a, like a slight libertarian thing there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But there was a funny uh, thing. This is totally tangential, but um, they, they recorded this, this album uh, – you probably don't remember the McKenzie brothers Bob and Doug McKenzie he, the, one of the actors was the guy that was in honey I, honey I shrunk the kids moranis or whatever anyway uh, i've
0: heard of that movie but not not those actors
1: okay so they're all canadians and rush is canadian so they had this comedy album like in the 80s or something and and with with their, their and they, they got getty lee who's the singer for rush to to sing a song for them on their album and he, it was kind of funny and they said getty uh, that was pretty good. Like we wrote these lyrics for this kind of comedy song. He sang it, mm-hmm. and he said, "Hey man, I'm a professional." <laughs> nice. So that was my. Uh, that was what you made me think of when you maybe, said you maybe, I'll have to
0: start, maybe I'll just maybe I'll to start listening to Rush. Then I guess.
1: Um, yeah, I if know. you're gonna be libertarian, you gotta listen to Rush, and you gotta read Atlas Shrugged, and you know you gotta do all the things. You gotta uh, it's the signs I've of the. I've
0: actually. I'll. Uh, I'll come out and admit I've never actually read a single thing Anne R- Rand has written, and huh. I'm not really, like, proud of that, but I just – I'm more of, like, a Rothbard or a Walter Block.
1: Yeah, like, you am not fiction. Well, do you read you – you don't ever read fiction?
0: Uh, that's the thing, yeah. I'm not really a huge fiction person. Like, I'm not really into movies or – like, yeah. if I watch TV, it's never going to be, like, a, a sci-fi thing. It's going to be, like, a sport – maybe a sports um, – I'm I'm way more interested in like private roads and what Walter Block says about that than uh, like. I would Anne let me Anne. just
1: tell you let me give you one piece of advice okay so mm-hmm. if you don't like fiction if you like fiction I would say you should read Atlas Shrugged because you would you would be amazed at like you'd see not only just because you would see like oh here's I see what the origins of libertarianism are and why people what got our movement going uh, but if you don't like fiction um, no. If you like nonfiction, read her book Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. It's got some essays by Alan Greenspan about antitrust and uh, some other essays. Um, You might really – if you like Rothbard, you might really like that, and also Philosophy, Who Needs It. Um, Those two, just take a look at those two nonfiction books. Uh, I'm not trying to promote Randianism, but you you actually will see some things in there that – came before rothbard that you will see echoes of in some of rothbard's writing because rothbard was part of that circle for a while rothbard mm-hmm. repeats or, or incorporates a lot of randian arguments and thinking uh in some of his thoughts so um uh, okay just, maybe just i should check suggestion. it out yeah yeah yeah
0: okay interesting uh tell people where they can find you or how they can uh interact with you or whatever like uh plug whatever you're you know trying to uh, um, do these
1: days well i'm at uh, yeah, uh, I'm at com and I have a occasional podcast, which is basically repeats of things I do with other people's podcasts. Like this one will be on there. Um, I might be doing a course for Safedina Moose. You ever have you heard of Safadina Moose?
0: Yeah, the Bitcoin, uh, the Bitcoin guy. Yeah.
1: Yep. Yep. The, he wrote the the book, The Bitcoin Standard. He's probably the mm-hmm. leading, I'd say, the leading economist on Bitcoin issues. He's amazing. Uh, he's got like a little private. … online school called – I think it's called Safedine. I think it's called the Bitcoin Standard Academy, so I might be doing a guest course for him on libertarian theories in the next couple of weeks, which anyone can sign up for. Um, and I have a book I'm working on. I've been working on for years, but it's just a comp, an edited compilation of my essays on libertarian legal theory called Law in the Libertarian World. So I'm hoping in the next six months that will come out.
0: Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know that. Uh, that reminds me of uh, when Walter Block put out his uh, – he does that sometimes. But he put out uh, like Defending the Undefendable. I think that's kind of where that started. So that would be interesting. I'm excited to see that. Hopefully it comes yeah, out by I the think, end of the I year.
1: I think Walter's working on uh, Defending the Undefendable 3 right now from what I understand. Uh, he, he did the first one, which is a classic, and um, then he did the second one, Defending the Undefendable 2, about – Seven, eight, nine years ago, and he has a chapter on IP, which 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 made me uh, which made me chuffed, and uh, and I don't know what number three. I mean, the problem is you got to keep scraping. You know, you take the low hanging fruit first, right? The prostitute or whatever. But then in the third one, you're 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 down to the bottom of the barrel finding.
0: Yeah, you end, up, but, you end up defending politicians, maybe. Who knows? But uh, yeah,
1: this. Yeah, he might.
0: Yeah. Go ahead.
1: No, you're right. He might
0: um anyway this was great uh we didn't even get to crypto i had that like written down maybe maybe if we do it again we can get into crypto because i have a lot of uh interesting thoughts on bitcoin i think that i'd probably disagree with you maybe on bitcoin slightly but maybe if we do it again we can get into that are you pro
1: bitcoin Um, or anti-bitcoin or what
0: uh i mean i'm pro crypto but um, i'm i'm anti-bitcoin for the most part but
1: oh you're not a maximalist or whatever yeah
0: no definitely not so it's complicated but uh maybe that's for a future episode if we end up doing one but appreciate everything uh like I said, you're really generous with your time. I'm just kind of uh, starting out, so this should give me a nice boost uh, for my audience. And uh, any any last thoughts? Uh, you no, want to give to luck. people.
1: Good, you're a good you're uh you're a good interviewer. I've I've talked to lots of people. You're a good interviewer. You didn't yeah good good job.
0: Appreciate it. I appreciate it. Um, I've actually heard the opposite, so I appreciate you saying that. People have said like my interviews are like my weaker uh part of the podcast and they want to hear more uh single person rants which i get on sometimes but oh i, I totally really appreciate that
1: agree. i don't listen to inter- i don't listen to podcasts by people who just rant because um, it, it takes too long and uh I, I i generally like the ones that are interviews with people because they either summarize a book they've just written or it's a different perspective you know from a different mm-hmm. anyway that's my that's my podcast listening habit perspective interesting
0: well Thanks a lot. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna end this and I'm gonna edit it and put it up. And uh, I hope you have a nice day. And hopefully we'll do it again
1: soon. Take care. Be safe.
0: Thanks, Stefan. Take care. Bye. Bye.